I'm your host, Henry Gross. It gives me great pleasure now to welcome to Viewpoints for the first time, Brian Jeffrey, who's the Director of Moat Mental Health Services and is a registered psychiatric nurse. Insofar as schools is concerned, Brian uh, presents many presentations. Understanding and responding to students is often a focus, and for today, uh, we're going to be looking at COVID-19, cumulative stress, among other things. But firstly, welcome to Viewpoints, Brian Jeffrey. Thank you very much, Henry. It's great to be part of your podcast. Thanks for the invite. Oh, and it's a pleasure to have you on board. And as uh, I've told many people, um, we had the pleasure of uh, a professional development activity um, a little while ago with you. And um, it was a very productive and very inspiring uh, in service and can't recommend it too highly to other people. Thank you. Brian, you've got 25 years of clinical experience in both Scotland and England in your field. Um, You've now expanded into consulting. What led you to this and uh, what do you actually do? Well, it started off, Henry, back in the day. In 1995, I became a psychiatric nurse. And I found very early on in my journey that young people was my comfort zone. Um, So that was partly down to one of my first experiences as a psychiatric nurse, where I was on placement as a student with a wonderful, wonderful community psychiatric nurse called Lorna. And she taught me the ropes and she showed me how we can engage with young people and catch them early when things are starting to go wrong and and have an enormous impact potentially on their lives. So I, I... in Scotland, I did a few years in Scotland before I emigrated to Australia. And in those few years, I started working with young people in care. So young people who've been abused, neglected, brought into the care system, foster care, residential care, kinship care, whichever model it's going to be. And I just found the challenge refreshing. Every single time I was engaging with any of these young people, they were bringing new things to the conversation, sometimes very challenging, sometimes very um, confronting, but always a, a new energy. So I, I found that that was my client group. That's the, the best client group for me to work with. The more of the mental health clinical work that I did with that audience, the more I was invited by organisations to, to help them to understand what I was doing. You know, so they were saying to me, you know, we are, we are working with these young people in residential care. And you come in and you do this. Can you tell us why it is you do that with them? You know, why that intervention? So that opened up to quite a lot of mental health training that I was developing and delivering to that sector. And then I had a a wonderful opportunity. (laughs) This is all chance conversations. I had a wonderful opportunity where I was invited to speak at one of the conferences for education for kids with special needs. And I was humming and hawing. I wasn't sure whether I was going to do it or not. And my wife talked me into it, as she often does. <laughs> I thought, you know what? I'm just going to have a crack at this. Why not? And the audience, the, the teachers, the principals, the APs, the leaders, the, um, the all the staff members, the feedback that I was getting from that conference was that they really, really liked my message. So then individual schools started inviting me to do professional development for their staff teams. And then that would be a a full day professional development session, similar to what I did for yourselves. Mm -hmm. And then that leads into me being invited back in to do small group work and to do classroom observations and feedback to teachers on what I'm seeing 
and it's just evolved. It's just been a, a lovely process to be part of, um, mm. but enormously rewarding, Henry, enormously mm. rewarding. It's it's great for me to be in a position where I can come into a school, I can sit up the back of the classroom and watch one student for an hour. And I'm able to pick apart what that student is doing and what they're experiencing and what perhaps sometimes confronting behaviours they're presenting with. And the beauty of my role is I'm sitting there watching one student while the teacher is trying to watch 25 students. Mm. So I'm, I'm seeing stuff that they just couldn't possibly see. So it's a wonderful position where I can come in, catch up with the teacher at the end of the session and say, you know what I was seeing? I saw this. And the teacher saying, how did you see that? I didn't notice it. I said, well, you were running about teaching 25 kids. <laughs> I was just sitting at the back of your classroom watching one of them. You know, so that, that's really where it came from, Henry. It was really the, the natural development of stuff that I'm passionate about. And the, the doors just opened for me. So I'm particularly blessed in that regard. Been mm. very fortunate. Mm. One of the things that you, you notice when you come into schools, um, and you're quite right, teachers are busy with 25, sometimes 30 children. What are the sort of things that they, they miss when uh, with the children that, you know, have got special needs, uh, perhaps yeah. troubled minds that you can spot? It's the small things. You know, and that's that's a focus of the, the work that I'm doing supporting schools is if, if you can create the right energy in the classroom, if the adults being, can, can be a, a calming, predictable, containing, safe, compassionate energy, then the kids naturally pick up on that. You know, we are homeostatic mechanisms. We pick up on what's happening around us. And if people are high energy, we become high energy. And the opposite is true. So one of the first things for me is setting the energy in the classroom where the, the teaching staff and non-teaching staff in that space sometimes, they need to be game ready as soon as they walk in the door because the kids pick up on that. Then once the small behaviour start, if we can creatively and compassionately and consistently um, mm. help, help kids to change those small behaviours before they become big behaviours, then that's often the best way to deal with it. Unfortunately, sometimes, Henry, I'm, I'm called into schools when the, the horse is already bolted, when the behaviours mm. are extreme. Kids are running around the schoolyard being chased by teachers and all kinds of strange things happening. And the, the staff are saying to me, how do we stop that behaviour, Brian? So we need to wind the clock right back to the very beginning. When that kid was starting to dysregulate in the classroom, what can we do in that moment? What can we do in that moment to help them to stay in the space, to help them to stay confident and positive? Um, so it's often looking at the, the very, very small behaviours and catching them early, which, again, I have the luxury of being able to do because of my role. And a lot of education staff, it's, it's difficult for them to be able to prioritise that amongst everything else. Mm. Now, one of the things that can easily happen in schools and with young people in general, and I'm sure you've seen this, Brian, is that an exasperation and frustration after um, going down paths of, of intervention that don't work, adults, yeah. teachers, they give up on certain kids. But uh, as you say in your presentations, neuroscience is uh, giving us some 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 very hopeful strategies that uh, we should uh, we should indicate we should never give up on children. You 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 could elaborate on that. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so the the neuroscience that I'm a particular fan of is um, 
driven by a man called Bruce Perry. Bruce is from Houston, Texas. Um, he does a lot of work around something called the neurosequential model of therapeutics, which is all very wordy. But what he's talking about is how trauma and stress can affect the wiring of a young person's brain. Um, but his research, so again, Bruce Perry, his research is absolutely wonderful in regards to how can we help young people to stay in the cognitive part of the brain. And one of the things that I talk about that aligns beautifully with Bruce's work and Bruce's research is repetitive neural stimulation activities help to calm the brain. So if you can encourage that young person to do anything that's repetitive, that stimulates the brain in a repetitive way, that calms the brain stem, the bottom part of the brain, and then that starts to regulate the full brain. And this can be the easiest of activities. This can be, you know, asking the, the student to walk with you, you know, or to walk mm -hmm. to the, the classroom next door to ask that teacher or give that teacher a message, or, you know, anything like that. Walking another student to the toilet, you know, it, it can be uh, doing arts and crafts, it can be drawing, it can be colouring. It can be taking two minutes out to bounce a basketball. You know, it can be doing dancing, it can be doing singing. You know, it, there's so many things that are able to, to be utilised for that. And what I love is when I see the teachers being creative for that. There was a young boy that I was working with a few years ago, and he... He was one of those boys that the staff were starting to lose faith and and you know they would, they would speak about him and you could hear their voice you know when when they were mm. saying his name it was very disregarding i thought oh that's such a shame you're kind of losing the awesomeness of this kid so we, we, we started talking about this young boy he's a big fan of basketball he loves basketball he gets dropped off very early at school. I probably told this story, Henry, when I was at school. It's one mm. of my favourites. Uh, <laughs> and he gets dropped, gets dropped off early because his parents aren't really that interested in him. One of the teachers at that school was a big basketball fan. And it was actually teachers that came up with a suggestion. Why don't we grab that kid 10 minutes before the start of school, take him to the basketball court and just shoot hoops with him? for five, 10, 15 minutes before the start of school and see if that helps them to regulate. And it did. It helped them to regulate and be able to manage for the first 15, 20 minutes of the school day. And then what the teachers were saying was, right, 15 to 20 minutes is a bit of a test for this kid. We need to break the day up into little 15 minute chunks for him. So let's do a 15 minute activity and then get him walking from that part of the classroom or the teaching space to the other part. And again, repetitive neural stimulation started to calm his brain. They eventually came around to the fact that this was an awesome kid who didn't have very much going in his mm. favour. And the last thing that he needed, obviously, was any adults around him perpetuating that negative energy he was receiving at home. But the teachers eventually got there and they did some fantastic work with this kid. And it, it was just refreshing to see the creativity coming through. Some of your, your teaching staff and some of your non-teaching staff as well, teachers' aids, education support, they come out with really phenomenal suggestions that, that most people wouldn't think of. You know, So even though sometimes some staff are really negative about a kid because they've lost hope, you know, it doesn't take much to spark that hope back in again sometimes. And sometimes it's just that one creative suggestion 
that can help that kid to turn around. Absolutely. We'll take a short break, Brian, um, and when we come back, I'd love to talk about a term you've used, cumulative stress and COVID-19. Can you hold the line? Lovely. Yes, sure. Welcome back to Viewpoints, listeners. I'm your host, Henry Grosseckle. I'm in a bit of a discussion with Brian Jeffrey, Director of Moat Mental Health Services and Registered Psychiatric Nurse on our mental health and well-being. Welcome back, Brian. Thank you, Henry. Now, Brian, um, COVID-19 and cumulative stress. Uh, we can't escape the impact last year of COVID-19 on our well-being, physical and mental. Uh, from your perspective in this term, cumulative stress, you might like to start the conversation. Absolutely. So, I mean, first of all, just acknowledging that we're, we're talking about something that's enormously passionate just now. And there's going to be people who are listening to us talking just now who have been severely affected by this. So I just want to do a bit of recognition of this. This can be an enormously uncomfortable subject for some people. One of the things for me about cumulative stress, Henry, is mm. that the people sometimes don't appreciate that each of their individual stressors takes its own space within you. So if you've got some stress about financial issues and then you've got some stress about relationships, and you've got some stress because you're a parent and you're having difficulty with your kids. And then there's workplace stress and stress with your in-laws and family health issues. And it all just starts piling up. Yeah, It eventually gets to that level where it's almost choking you. You know, it's at chest height, all these layers of cumulative stress. And then because we're in Melbourne, because we're in Australia, your choice of AFL footy team could be another stressor for you, depending <laughs> on how the, how the season's going. True. And... And then the big thing that's sitting on top of that just now, Henry, is all these unanswered questions about COVID. Am I going to get infected? Am I going to get COVID? Am I going to then take it into my workplace and infect my colleagues? Or am I going to bring it back from the workplace, not realising and infect my loved ones? Are my loved ones going to get unwell? Could I be responsible partly for one of my older family members? you know, contracting COVID mm -hmm. and having a, a really horrific outcome because of that. Is the vaccine going to work? When am I getting my vaccine? Do I have to get it every year? All these unanswered questions are the ones that are at the top of the pile of cumulative stress that are choking people just now. And, and my thing about cumulative stress is that COVID is sitting on top of another eight stressors. If we can take out some of those small stressors like deal with the financial issues, deal with your relationship issues, deal with the parenting problems, <laughs> deal with the workplace stress. Once you take them out, the whole cumulative stress level drops a bit and you can start breathing again. So I think one of the beauties of picturing it as cumulative stress is that you don't always have to work on the big issue. If the big issue is all your COVID worries, sometimes you don't even have to address that just to get breathing again. So for me, one of my concerns in the last 12 months has been I have heard loved ones and friends saying things like, oh, you know, that stuff's really bugging me just now, but I'm not going to deal with it just now. I'll wait till after COVID and I'll deal with it then. And you're putting it in a big cupboard that's getting full and full of stressors mm -hmm. that we're going to deal with after COVID. Whenever that's going to be, who knows when after COVID is really going to be, mm -hmm. you know, but all that stuff's piling up. For me, I'm a, I'm a big fan of the, the serenity poem. God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, 
the courage to change the things I can and the wisdom to know the difference. Wonderful, wonderful poem. Um, and that, for me, speaks to this cumulative stress thing. Deal with what you can deal with. See that stuff that's too big just now? Maybe you can't deal with it, but you can deal with the other stuff that's surrounding it. You can deal with how often you're going to go back and revisit this enormous stressor, how many hours you're going to spend worrying about it. You know, so it's about choosing your fights, choosing your battles, and, and trying to chip away at that cumulative picture of stress. And, you know, there's a lot we can do about that. There's a lot we can do to, to try and reduce our overall stressors. And, and that's where I think the smart work comes. Obviously, I've got a vested interest in education, mental health education being part of that. Mm. But, you know, mental health education within families, not just organisations. You know, if you're the type of family, Henry, where you, you sit down at the end of the day and you have dinner together and you chat about stuff, mm. it's just a, a wonderful platform to, to start talking about these things in a, a rational, calm, mature you know, factual way. Um, and that's not always the message that we're getting in society. It's not always factual um, and it's not always mature conversations that you're party to. So it's nice to just have that space, I think, as a perhaps a family unit to just be able to sit down and break bread together and uh, chat about these things in a, a really productive, healthy way. It's mm, a good point. Um, I was listening this week, Brian, to some conversation about um, what are some of the big uh, stress or outcomes and uh, of COVID, uh, and and they've identified loneliness, but as a psychological issue, as one yeah. of the big issues of today in terms of cumulative stress um, for those people who have that great sense of loneliness, even though they could be surrounded with devices and people. Um, what can you suggest? Uh, that, that's something, actually, there's a, a video that people might be interested in watching. I, I use it when I'm delivering training. It's a video by a man called Johan Harry, J-O-H-A-N-N, Johan Harry, H-A-R-I. And it's where he talks about his book that he wrote called Lost Connections. It's about depression. And it's about how depression can often be about a loss of connection and how enormously important it is for us to feel connected. So great point, Henry, and you can be surrounded by lots of people and lots of mediums to talk to lots of people, but there's absolutely no connection there. And, and one of the examples is that, of that is that you're in Times Square on New Year's Eve with thousands of other people that you don't know. You're part of the buzz. It's really going off. It's a great energy but you know nobody there. So sometimes people, even though they're surrounded by lots of other people, they do feel disconnected, they feel isolated. So it's, a, it's about really trying to help that person to find one connection. One connection and develop that. And then another connection, but it's about the, the quality rather than the quantity of the connections. Um, for those people who are able to identify connections that have been broken, so connections to other people, connection to social identity, connection to culture or community or religion, you know, connection to physical health. For all of those connections that are broken, if we can help people to reconnect with them, then that's one of the ways of starting to chip away at this um, cumulative stress idea. Mm. It reminds me of the conversation we're just having, uh, Brian, of a term that we used to use uh, 
uh, in schools, and I, and I guess it's related to this, and that is the students who felt completely alienated from yeah. the school for any of many socioeconomic reasons as well as educational. Uh, your message, uh, yeah, the message to us on that. So for, for me, for, for kids that are, that are feeling alienated, often that can come back to one very, very small thing. Um, so I've, I've worked with quite a lot of young people in the community who have been unfortunately labelled as school refusers, which I think is a really, really unfortunate title. Uh, so th there was one young boy in the community who was had been attending a private school in Melbourne. And he'd had a bad experience in maths. So he was a secondary school kid. He had a bad experience in maths. He couldn't quite remember what it was. But the time that I was requested to help him by his parents, he hadn't been at school for over three months. And when I was meeting with him, I was trying to work out, you know, where this had all come from. And he honestly couldn't identify it. And all he could give me was, Brian, I think it was a few months ago, something happened in maths. And I says, had you been ridiculed? Had you made a mistake? Had you know, somebody called you out? He says, I've got absolutely no recollection, but I'm just pretty sure it was something to do with maths. So it can be a tiny little thing like that that alienates a kid. It can be that they don't feel a sense of belonging. It can be, as you're fully aware, that sometimes young people um, can be bullying peers without even realising that what they're doing is bullying. You know, not not allowing young people to be part of their their peer group. You know, not allowing them mm -hmm. into conversations, not allowing them to play games with them. You know, so that alienation it can be coming from lots and lots of small things, or could be something really severe. So for us to help that young person who feels alienated, we're willing to work out which one it is. Is it one of those things that happened a few months ago, a tiny little event that they can't even remember anymore? Or is it something that was really noticeable, perhaps in bullying, perhaps a really un unfortunate conversation with a staff member, you know, and trying to repair that to, to bring them back in. But there's quite a lot of detective work, investigative journalism required to really get in there and find out what's happening. Absolutely. Brian, time's got away from us. There's so many things we've just scratched the surface and yet in doing so, it's been so valuable. In, in thanking you for your time and contribution to Viewpoints, if people want to get in touch with you, how would they do that? Yeah, well, my, my business is Moat, M-O-A-T, Moat Mental Health Services. Uh, strangely enough, the website is moat.com.au. <laughs> you can drop me an email at brian, B-R-Y-A-N, at moat.com.au. Anything to do with mental health or challenging behaviour or occupational violence, that's the stuff that I'm passionate about. Absolutely, you do it well. That was Brian Jeffrey, Director of Moat Mental Health Services and a registered psychiatric nurse. We'll take a short break. Listeners, don't go away.